No, no Citizen Kane related bit. You guys got one? <laughs> just like a really like low like podcast. <laughs> or just uh, just thinking like the the jump scare with the cockatoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Just> scream. <laughs> that caught me off guard at the very end. Yeah. <laughs> to wake the audience up. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, Make sure you're paying attention. 45 minutes in at that yeah, point. It's almost two hours, yeah. Yeah. You think that... Yeah, um, make sure you're paying attention. The audience didn't need to be woken up. I thought it was a pretty... Uh, yeah, it's zippy. ...flowing film. I think it moves, it's yeah. It moves. It, it's, got, it's, got, it's got a lot of stuff to get through, and it does it quickly in an interesting way. Well, not quickly. Efficiently, I should mm. say. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, let's do that. We can talk about the cockatoo, I guess. <laughs> As you guys know, I don't understand the podcast. It will either be that or something along the lines of Welcome to Late the Movies. This is a podcast where my friends and I get to fill in our movie blind spots each week. We'll pick a movie that either I or a guest hadn't seen before and really should have by now. This week, kicking off a brand new month with a brand new theme is 1941's Citizen Kane. The theme this month is I don't know if we're going to come up with a spiffier title than just what it is, but in honor of the new decennial, every 10 years, whatever that is, uh, Sight and Sound poll from BFI just came out at the beginning of December. We are picking five movies from the new top 10, and the first one we're doing is Citizen Kane, which sits at number three Mm -hmm. in the new top 10, but sat at number one for five decades, 50 years from the Second poll to the sixth poll, I think. That's how numbers work. Yep. And um, in 2012, got knocked down to number two by Vertigo. And in this year, just a month ago, got knocked down to number three. Now behind Vertigo at two and Jean Dielman at number one. So whatever. That's what the theme is this month. Uh, left to right across your podcast dial, your guest this week, you got Kay. Hello. And Anthony. Hello. Hello. <laughs> how are you guys doing? Great. Doing Good. Good. Um, so why are we doing this for this month? Well, it's not just a big deal on Twitter and internet circles and among film nerds, but when people say Citizen Kane is the best movie ever made or the greatest movie of all time, this is the poll that they're talking about. This is sort of kind of the canon, or at least is reflected in the current moment that each poll comes out. But typically when people say this is the greatest movie of all time, they're using this as their evidence. But why do the Brits get to decide it? It's not just the Brits. It's actually a worldwide international poll. The most recent one was critics, exhibitors, um, film enjoyers and appreciators. Uh, I think it was almost 1,700 of them from all around the world voted. They all fill out a top 10 and it shakes out to a top 100, which they post of critics. And then there's a separate... I think this time almost 500 directors responded and there's a separate director's poll. But normally people are talking about the critics poll when they're talking about the sight and sound list. Did you get a vote? I did not get a vote. Oh. Not, not quite there Late yet. Late to the movies wasn't on the list. No. We weren't on the list, unfortunately. But, uh, One day. Next, next time. Next, next we got 10 next years. Time. 10, 10 years. years. Probably nine and a half before they start. Whatever. It doesn't Don't matter. call it a comeback. Yeah. No. Um, but yeah, so for our top 10 that we're picking five from, we're working off of the critics list, which just to set up at the beginning, like I said, number one, Gene Dealman. Two is Vertigo. Three, Citizen Kane. Four is Tokyo Story. Five, In the Mood for Love. Six is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Seven is Beau Travai. Eight is Mulholland Drive. Nine is Man with a Movie Camera. Ten is Singing in the Rain. And depressingly for me, bumped out of the top 10 to number 11 is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. I know I said I'd only mention the top 10, but I'm just saying... <laughs> 
If Sunrise, a song for two humans, a silent movie made by F.W. Murnau in the 20s, had stayed in the top 10, we would absolutely be doing it this <laughs> month. It is one of my favorite movies. But whatever, I'm not bitter. Um, that being said, uh, what's up with you guys? How y'all doing? <laughs> doing good. Uh, yeah. As we're recording, it is still 2022, but this will be the first episode of 2023. So I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic about the year that happened. So... Instead of just if you've seen anything good recently, maybe if you can't think of something good recent, what's something you saw this year that you really liked? Oh, that's a big question. You can keep it to recent also. Just <laughs> uh, I haven't been watching many movies recently. A lot of catching up on Netflix type stuff over the holiday. So I watched uh, Wednesday. Really, really loved it. Yeah, excellent. I thought it was great. A lot of fun. Um for movies for the year that I really loved, oh no, the only one I can think of is Maverick. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, I, because I loved it. Unfortunately, because I cannot think of anything else. It just I feel like that's probably one of my top ones yeah. for the year, just because it was so well done, so much fun, really enjoyable. Um, ben and I just saw Avatar: Way of Water. Oh yeah, how was that? Um, it was good. It's just I don't know. I don't know if I love the plot. Yeah. But but I think it was more I understand why it was there. It felt like the plot was secondary to him using it as a vehicle to showcase the technology, the action and all of that, which I completely think is valid and a hundred percent was warranted because it was extremely well done mm -hmm. and there were some amazing action sequences, but um I know Ben does not totally yeah, but, uh, feel the yeah. same, but no, I, I, I feel mostly the same. Okay. That's, that's, I don't know. I've been keeping a running list of my favorite movies of the year. That's around 11 or 12. It's okay. not, so it's not something that I'm going to. Avatar gonna, 2? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I never seen it, so I can't really complain, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was better than the first one, or at least it's going more, it's coming in my direction, I guess is the way that with a few weeks of uh, perspective, it's more about like the emotional stuff that's going on, which sounds weird for Avatar with the blue alien cats <laughs> that are nine feet tall running around. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's going in a much weirder direction than the first movie, which I think I appreciate a lot. Yeah, no. <laughs> Is it dark? No. No, it's no. it's it's. We need some like darkness. It's great. So it's the first hour is basically a retread of the first movie. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, is this not going to be a... Th then the second hour, they're just hanging out in the water and there's not really anything that happens. But I love that. Mm -hmm. And that is a big section where your mileage will vary because really nothing major is happening plot-wise, but they're just kind of chilling. And it's like the most visually inventive stuff that's been put to film ever. And then the last hour and change is one huge... Um, Fight. Action set piece by the guy who is maybe the best action set piece maker alive. It's a straight like Terminator 2 aliens level action stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. But you're already two hours into the movie before yeah. that stuff starts. So that's long asleep. So again, your mileage will vary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you? No, I, I agree. I think I think the BFI left off Top Gun 2 yeah. Maverick. That was <laughs> a big, was big, a big, big God. oversight on their yeah. part. There, there's a couple recent movies, but the most recent ones are from 2019. So ooh, if, if only it had come out when it was supposed to come out in like yeah. 2020. Right. Um, then maybe it would have been. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, you liked Maverick, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And my, my brother was home from Tennessee for Christmas, so oh, nice. uh, he, he didn't see it, him and his girlfriend. So I threw it on. We yeah. watched it again. The whole fan, My mom, my dad, my, it was 
it was better the second time than it was the first time. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. in, in, so good. Not in. I mean, it's better in theaters, but even in the living room was mm-hmm. what a film. That's like action film. I I hear you on the CGI and all the, but we we watched twenty six Marvel movies. What more can you possibly do? Graphic effects. Oh yeah, twenties twenty six Marvel movies now up to thirty. I think and it sh- should all be horribly embarrassed watching how good this version of CGI looks. Really? If you don't have to put out four of them a year and yeah, you can yeah. put out one movie every thirteen years, <laughs> right. I guess it's bound to look better. But. Yeah, and I, I mean it, the all the underwater sequences. It's oh yeah. I mean tough, he just it was a full callback to Titanic. Forever. Yeah, he likes being in the water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, he he plays the hits. Yeah, mm-hmm. he has some. He has. I said there's like straight up Terminator two and Alien stuff. There is stuff that is just like those set pieces, right? Can't, not in a bad way. In a way that's like, oh yeah, he's maybe the good best guy to ever do this. Yeah, good old Jimmy Cameron. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I saw the uh, the menu a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. Still, oh, really still want to see it. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit. I don't do horror well, it's, but I feel like it might tread the line of not too horror Uh There's really only like one part that I would really consider horror. Okay. You can go with one part. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but it's, it very, was... it's very suspenseful. Okay. Not In... a lot of jump scares. Okay. Good. I, like good, good, good. Um, yeah. Not, really not even really that gory either, except a couple parts. Okay. Is it is it funny? Just based on the trailer, it seems like maybe it skirts into black comedy at a couple points. It, it is. But yeah. Okay. But it's very serious too. It's Adam okay. McKay and Will Ferrell. Yeah. Um, but the if you really, I like I like food, and it sort of really makes fun of like hot cuisine, foodie culture, yeah. celebrity chefs. Ralph Fiennes is excellent and amazing. John Leguizamo's in it as like the comic relief. He's very funny. Ah. Um, and then, but just what happens throughout the film is just like a brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. Okay. Brilliant. That's great. Yeah. I, I really want to see it. I like Andy Taylor-Joy a lot. Uh, Nicholas Holt's in there too. And his he has a U in his name, but it's almost Holt, which yeah. is also my name. So mm-hmm. I like him. Uh, yeah. And like you said, Red Fines is, I mean, fantastic. We did, I, we haven't done Grand Budapest Hotel, but we've mentioned on a different Wes Anderson episode that he's amazing in that movie. And yeah. He should have won all the awards. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, the ending to the menu, the the plot, Okay. Is similar to Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Interesting. The way okay. it ends. Oh, that. What cool. what makes Ray Fine's character tick okay. is exactly the same thing in in this movie. Okay. Citizen That's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. Well, parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's a puzzle or something. Maybe. Um this movie's great. But some other movies that are great that I've seen recently. Like I said, it's the end of the year as we're recording this, so I've been catching up on some stuff I missed. I saw The Fablemans in theaters, and that's probably my favorite movie of the year. Um, Horribly marketed. The poster is terrible for it. It doesn't reflect what the movie's like at all. It makes you think it's another one of these old masters reflecting on his career and wanting to make a movie about the magic of cinema. Mm. Um, But it's not. It's really weird and dark, and it's less about like a boy wonder who made movies that made everyone happy and more about um, this boy who was a savant at this one thing and he didn't know why and it ruined his life um, and estranged him from his family and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Great movie. Loved what, it. What was he a savant of? <laughs> Making movies. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's about Spielberg. Yeah, oh, it's, oh, right, it's right, right, a right, movie okay. Spielberg made yeah. vaguely about himself. Yep. 
um, that has, uh, I mean, some of it's really, it's not that, it's not all that dark either. Some of it's pretty light and breezy. It's still a Spielberg movie. Um, but it is, uh, probably my favorite thing he's done recently. I really liked West Side Story last year, but just on mm. like a first blush. And again, once I have a little more perspective, maybe this will change. But the last thing I really enjoyed a lot by him that I felt like I really internalized to this level is maybe like Catch Me If You Can. And that came out 20 years ago. So. What about Everything Everywhere All at Once? That Was that 2022? That was, but I was, that, yeah, that's just a movie I've seen since the last time I recorded. Yeah, yeah. But Everything Everywhere All at Once, is that's also hovering around my top five. Right. That was excellent. Back back of the napkin math right now, my top five in no particular order is probably Everything Everywhere, Fame Wins, Banshees, Vinishir, and Tar, nope. Probably some, that in some order is my top five. I is think. Nope better than Get Out? Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. I, that's that's uh i think people are coming around to that opinion more crazy. and more i i it's it was like i actually didn't love it at first i think i i would give it like a b plus when i saw it but i've I've come fully around to that being peel's best movie by kind of a lot really yeah and you saw banshees that was good banshees was amazing uh, i wanted to see that love banshees. i just never got a chance to. colin farrell having a an all-star year he's Amazing in that. He's amazing in a movie called After Yang, which is a Koganata film that came out earlier this year. And amazing is the Penguin in the Batman movie. I was just going to say. Oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't see all, Batman. All 2022 oh, gosh, performances so by good. him. Um, yeah, even if you've just seen like Batman and Banshees, the, you know, the range on that guy. Yeah. Ooh, if he's only the, the he, Fantastic Beast series oh God, kept him around. Kept the range, him. yeah. He's not in a phone booth. Once they took him out well, of that phone got, booth. Once yeah. they got him out of that phone booth, he's been unstoppable. The range. Yes. <laughs> Trapped in a glass box of emotion. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's vaguely my top four-ish, I guess. I don't know. RRR is actually probably in there, too. So there's six or seven movies that are all in my top five. <laughs> if you're not, like, making me pick... <laughs> No, I think that's, that's a great list. Yeah. But you've left out Maverick. Yeah. Maverick's around my six. top 10-ish or so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And anything I didn't name that you're in love with is my number six. <laughs> Did you see RRR? No. It's on Netflix. It's probably the best action movie of the year. Um, the version on Netflix is a Hindi dub. Mm -hmm. So, you're I mean, you're reading subtitles either way. Um, but it's a great action movie. It's really long, but it does a lot of things that are like... <laughs> Oh man, I wish superhero movies were this inventive with their action stuff. It's really silly action for a lot of it, but it's done so well that then, it's so so good. Really? And yeah. then and then some of it is extremely serious. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the end and it has and like the final thing it does is like extremely nationalistic in a way that you're like, "Oh, was this propaganda the whole yeah, time?" Yeah, right. <laughs> but then you're like, uh, "But I liked Top Gun Maverick, so can yeah, I really yeah. complain about something it's, being it's nationalistic?" Not, it's Top Gun Maverick is not propaganda because there's an unnamed country in it. Oh, true enough. Oh, true, true, true. <laughs> there, there is a long scene where Tom Cruise is explaining how good the new Lockheed Martin <laughs> jets are. Yeah, but in case you're a government looking to contract <laughs> some new ship, uh, they some new the, planes. That's just product placement, you know? <laughs> yeah. Product placement. It's product placement for um, weapons manufacturers. <laughs> um, all right. Do, you, do we want to talk about Citizen Kane? Let's do it. Been recording for over 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, all right. So our little uh, disclosure 
form at the beginning here. I've seen this movie a number of times now. Okay. I have seen this movie. I saw it for the first time two years ago, one year ago. It's whenever Ben was like, you you must sit down and watch this. It's probably for, when I had mink fever. Probably. Because for a when while I was, I was just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to see. Like, I just was like, I've heard so much about it at this point. Yeah. There's no way it can live up right. to that hype. And I'm not super... I just, I don't watch a lot of very old movies. So I was kind of like, I don't, I, f- I don't know. I just was for some reason fairly resistant. And at, at one point you were like, we are watching Citizen Kane. I was like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so. that, that was a joke, but I do think it's around when Mank came out and I was like, that I love to make. And so I'm going to rewatch this and you have to watch it with me. And yeah. well, we wouldn't be doing this as an episode if someone hadn't watched it yet. And that leaves Anthony. So <laughs> yeah, ju- I just watched it. <laughs> Nice. May or may not have been today. <laughs> good, good. So it's fresh. Yep. Uh, did you it. did you take in all the greatness of it? Did you notice that the ceilings were really, really low in a lot of scenes? Uh, no. That's something you don't pick up on until a fourth or fifth viewing. Uh, but in the, in these old movies, I do like the the set. The, it's an actual designed set, right? So there's no yeah. uh, obviously there's no yeah, computers it's, it's, or anything, right? So there back lots and right. sound stages and props and fake ceilings and yeah it's it, uh it gives more credence i think to those types of films yeah mm-hmm. yeah for sure um all right well either of you feel particularly like doing a one minute plot summary yeah sure i'll do it okay. right. <laughs> we were both looking at you <laughs> all right all right ready yeah. uh publisher and industrial magnate charles forster kane was equally loved and hated Dies uttering one last word, Rosebud. This leads to a group of reporters to investigate and uncover the meaning of the word, revealing a fascinating and complex human being who, despite climbing higher and higher in wealth and status, slowly loses his soul, yearning for the joy and excitement in life he once had as a young boy. Hence, Rosebud. Yeah, you pretty much nailed it. Good job. (laughs) You got you you got it better than um, that was really good. (laughs) You got it better than the reporter, Mister Thompson, did (laughs) Mm -hmm. ultimately. Who never finds out what Rosebud means? Nope, no one does. Fantastic, unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's fucking lazy. Um, yeah, cool, cool movie. Anything we want to say about it beyond that, or I really (laughs) liked it, and it was. I remember when I first watched it, a little bit of. A kind of a revelation. I did not expect, I think, to like it as much as I did. I expected it to, I don't know, feel old and feel slow, and it doesn't. No. No. Yep. So this is an 81-year-old movie, and we, um, this is by far the lowest movie we've done. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it, I mean, it feels modern, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we when we watched this a couple years ago, we were like, oh, this is about Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Who hilariously says this is one of his favorite movies because I guess he stops watching halfway through. Um, Thinks everything goes great for this guy. Yeah. Yeah, his attention span goes to about 45 minutes in and then he shuts it off maybe. But But that's the genius of this film. You can literally put Citizen Trump, Citizen Musk, Citizen Bezos, Citizen Murdoch. It's the same. (laughs) Right, yeah. If you want to look at today, it's it's literally a guy buying the lie lie machine and finding that it doesn't fill the hole in his soul, right? Yeah. That seems to be playing out with the current world's richest man right before our eyes. Exactly. Um, anyway, yeah. Orson Welles is 25 when he writes, directs, and stars in this movie. Um, the makeup is fantastic for, for almost all of it. There's some of like the creasing you get from makeup, but it's not like that distracting. I feel like he looks pretty 
much non-makeup at all through his like middle ages in this yeah, movie. I, I, I don't know if that's by virtue of it's black and white, so you can get away with a lot more yeah. things like that, but it he looks the age he's supposed to throughout. It does that extremely well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I and that's for, you're a right. lot, for a lot of actors, they're all doing different various aged makeups and it's going back and forth depending on who's telling their story at the mm-hmm. time to different time periods. It's um, structurally a pretty insane movie. So with the obvious caveat that there's been 81 years of literature and books and literal other movies made about Citizen Kane, we're not mm-hmm. going to be able to cover that all in the span of an hour here. And uh, perhaps fairly, I, we can say we might not have the capacity to <laughs> exactly match up to almost to, a century we'd all of need to write a thesis, yeah, a, a full of dissertation about this film. But I don't want to tackle it from that direction. This is about movies we haven't seen before. Really should have by now. Filling in blind spot. So Anthony, um, were you surprised at the setup of this movie? He dies immediately, and then the rest is told in flashbacks because of a reporter asking questions. Um, no. I'm not surprised. Okay. I my favorite TV show of all time is Columbo. Okay. And Columbo <laughs> oh, follows the same format. They show yeah. you the murder or the crime in the beginning, then yeah. it's him figuring out who did it. This is the exact same not the exact same thing, but parallels that. Mm-hmm. And my favorite my favorite movie of all time is Casablanca. So the, mm. the the way the sets look, the voiceover in the beginning, you don't get that a lot in films today. And the the great mid Atlantic accent that people have. I just love so every good. aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty next level. So you start with the the shots getting closer and closer and it's for the first of many visual tricks they do is that as you get closer the lit window that you later find out is Kane's bedroom stays in the same place in every frame even in the reflection even as it gets closer through the animal pens through the fences up to his window there's an insane dissolve transition editing effect where it goes from outside the window, goes dark, it lights up again, you're inside the room, he says, Rosebud drops a thing, etc. But then you get, uh, what, News on the March? The, yes. the newsreel that takes up the next, like, 10 minutes. Right. Um, very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this movie comes out in 1941. There's archival footage of uh, Kane with Hitler <laughs> in it. Um, and also Teddy Roosevelt before that. And this is just some of the trickery that they're doing with this movie. They're making it not exactly on the cheap, but most of that newsreel is archival and stock footage from the RKO library that they mix in with just a couple shots here and there of actual actors that supposedly, maybe it's a story, maybe not, they they rubbed on the ground of the editing room floor to make it look like the same poor quality of the other archival footage. That's crazy. Because really it cool. already is kind of poor quality. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We, it's like, can you imagine being there? Guys, we got to make this look like it's 1933. <laughs> How are we going to do that? Let's rub it on the ground. Yeah. Pour some tea on it. <laughs> I've only been making moving images for less than What year is it? 1941. The future's coming. Come on, guys. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's... the. F- I think there's one shot in here that's the first of many times they do this where it's a political rally, but then there's just a, a low angle close up of one guy that's supposedly at the rally, but that's the only thing they actually shot for this movie. The political rally was just stock images, <laughs> basically just like a Getty images montage to start the movie. Um, and then, then you're at it. There's the reporters. It's, um, Mr. Thompson. You mostly see his back the whole movie and 
That's what we, that's what we have. Right. So, um, I guess just from a standpoint of you not having seen this before, did anything particularly stand out as surprising or like, Oh, that's not how I expected this to be. Or were you, I know you said you didn't like do, you know, copious amounts of research before going into it. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought I kind of, you just hear so much about Citizen Kane yeah. uh, growing up and whatnot. Is it, it reminded me of the aviator a little bit on uh, that same sure. sort of character, I, I guess. Yeah. Why, why not? You guys probably trying to relive the mm-hmm. same type of life. Um, I think it's a, it's a great movie about the, it's sort of uh, reminds me of the, the more things change, the more they really mm-hmm. stay the same. Right. It's, it's classic. There's, there's tale. always guys like this. Yeah. It was, it, yeah, the, exactly what you're saying though. I had that very feeling of, Oh, this is anyone in the news. You could find this guy now. So it's so weird that it's 80 years old and it's still the same and it's, repeating itself again and again and again throughout history. But also just, and I'd mentioned this to Ben, it's one thing that when we were watching it, I kept being like, oh, it's like this movie. It's like this movie. And I'm like, they probably got it no, from exactly, this. Right, so, exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The the most I've ever had that I I'm probably have mentioned it on the podcast before, so I'll go quick just in case. But uh, in, in school and film history class, because I went to a fake college, um, <laughs> that shouldn't be accredited for any kind of uh, real purpose or job. You, you know, sorry. Um, <laughs> summer camp with more singing. Um, that was your major. <laughs> anyway, we watched Double Indemnity, which you watch as a 19 year old and you're like, this is stupid. This is so cliched. And then you think about it a little bit and you're like, oh, this isn't cliched. This is the first time anyone did this. And anytime there's like, you know, a cartoon, even as a kid that you saw parodying noir, they're not parodying noir. They're just directly lifting lines from double indemnity. So you watch it now and you, you have to put yourself in the mindset of no one had done that before. That wasn't a cliche. Right. That wasn't a catchphrase. This is the first time anyone's ever done that. And uh, same thing with Citizen Kane. comes up a lot. It's also a huge critique on what the news is becoming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's thinking 81 years ago mm-hmm. and he gets he's getting to an argument. And he's like, um, yeah. he literally says that they want to re- report the gossip of housewives and the, and his publisher is saying, no, you have, to, we're, we're here to do the news. And he's like, no, that sucks. Yeah. I want to hear what Mrs. Smith is saying about our next door neighbor. Yeah. And, and making it up if you need to and doing the yellow journalism. Thing. Right. Exactly. And it's, um, especially, I, I don't know if it's just, it would probably be naive to be like, and especially today, I feel like we, this, it's just probably a thing that people are always thinking about throughout the course of, you know, American history is the way news and information is disseminated and who has control of it. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously control is a major thing for Orson Welles himself and for Kane in this movie. Right. Um, and the control of information by rich people is perhaps not something that uh, has ever been that good, but has always been topical. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very society critical as well of just it free journalism and access to information and that whole topic is something that you cannot have a truly free society without just freedom of journalism, freedom of the press, freedom of information being accepted and kind of disseminated to all people. And without that, it's, I mean, you would assume at this time they're speaking to directly to kind of a leading to fascism and leading to what they're seeing as a, yeah, cause of world war two and coming out of it's only been 
20 years since World War One, and so all of that. And it's just really, really well done. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And they have, as I guess a 25-year-old, but all, not just Orson Welles, but obviously also Herman Mankiewicz is the co-author of this. And I don't know if we're going to talk about Pauline Kael, but... Um, you know, almost a hundred years of controversy over the through the true authorship of this movie. But in any case, um, a, not a super positive portrayal of the way any of you know power works in American society. Which newspaper magnet was it that was he had been he'd been friends with Mank and he thought this was about him, and so he really put a wrench in their whole release plan. Was it Hughes? No. Yes. Uh, uh, Hearst. Hearst. One of those H's. Yeah. One William Randolph H's. Hearst. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wanted the original name of the movie is the American Hearst owned a bunch of papers that were called the blank American yeah. name, city name American. And he'd literally like, it was the same backstory of he had been ta- kind of taken from his family, sent to boarding school, right. kind of yeah. all of that. So he thought it was about him, was very yeah. upset about it. And, um, Delayed the release. Wells and Magwitz at the time said it's about a bunch of people, but obviously the perhaps sticking point was that um, Rosebud was a particularly intimate nickname that Hearst had for Marion Davies, um, an actor who was essentially the Susan Alexander IRL. Um, A comparison that always seemed a bit unfair because Marion Davies was actually quite talented. (laughs) Uh, but anyway, yes, she was in her forties. Well, Hearst was dating her when he was in his seventies. So that's, you know, the, the one-to-one that they were doing there. <laughs> yeah. And in the, the scene of, um, in the beginning when he says, uh, are we going to go to war with Spain? That's, that's yep. a direct slap at him. I feel like mm, muckraking yeah. and Spanish yeah. American war. Yeah. The, the, uh, the instigating yeah. of major things and yeah, I just feel like, um, Oh, we mentioned the structure already in the news on the March thing, which uh, the the voice there is William Allen, who's the actor that plays Thompson, who's sort of like a, the meek journalist that is mostly asking questions. These are all radio guys that Wells brings with him from the Mercury Theater, yeah. and they so all have they great all, voices. Yeah, they can all do crazy voice <laughs> yeah. work. Uh, anyway, that being said, so I, I feel like that does a great job setting up. You're going to have a lot of different overlapping storylines, some things that you see twice from a different perspective, depending on who's telling the story. And I guess maybe that could get easy to be lost in, but the beginning of the movie is telling you, this is what happened to this guy. This is when he lived, what he did and how he died. And so you're always sort of anchored because of that at the beginning, which is just uh, pretty cool. Well, it's also a little bit about Wells himself, he's got, he had multiple yep. affairs, Rita Hayworth and what's, mm-hmm. he, sure, yeah. he lived as mistress for 20 years. No one, yeah. you know what I mean? So he was I mean, only 25 when he made this movie. Though, right. So that was still to he, come. He predicted his own future. Yeah. He did predict his own future. I think he died <laughs> at the same age prophecy. as Kane. Just about. He did? Uh, just about. Yeah. Oh, he, yeah he died that. at 70, I think. Yeah, and right, right, right. Kane was in his seventies. Right. And, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know they give the actual years in the movie, but, uh, anyway, this this is the issue with movies like this is there's a million different angles you can kind of right attack from um imagine the mercury theater so orson wells is this uh wonderkind the boy wonder the prodigy who comes up from a kind of uh, weird upbringing by the time he's in his early 20s he's started the mercury theater with this guy john hausman 
and they do the War of the Worlds broadcast, which is a really famous radio adaptation of War of the Worlds that is claiming that Martians have touched down in New Jersey and are attacking that some people purportedly believed was real. If only. Mm-hmm. Who needs New Jersey? Yeah. Um, so speaking Garden of- State. You mentioned like hucksterism before and some some great um, notoriety building activities for a guy in his early 20s based, I guess, on the strength of that and his theater stuff and his radio stuff. He, from RKO, gets a pretty unheard of deal that guys like maybe Charlie Chaplin had before him where he has complete control over all of this movie as a 25 year old and uses it to do uh, things that should be impossible with a couple other people, not just him, um, not to get too into auteur theory. So let's, you know, acknowledge that other people worked on this movie too. Um, Greg Toland is this, the director of photography and also gets a ton of credit for how the movie looks, but they basically break every rule. And the line on that is as often repeated because he hadn't, Orson Welles hadn't made a movie before, so he didn't know what was supposed to be impossible. So they just did a bunch of things that should have been impossible <laughs> and broke a lot of rules. And through doing that, made a lot of new rules about how movies make are made and how they look. Anyway, um, because of Hearst, because of a lot of other things, it doesn't do that well. It's not thought that highly of until the 50s, really. And uh, basically, he never gets that amount of control ever for the rest of his life on anything that he works on. <laughs> is the short of, sort of the long and short of it. Yeah. But I've read it became popular after, uh, well, in post-war France. Yeah. Then that, then it came back to the States. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is, yeah, made in 1941. takes probably a decade. But it's also ironic. You make a movie sort of critiquing the way America is headed and, and skewing the media. And it's a guy from the media who says, well, we're not going to play this film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So get lost, buddy. Yeah, and you think about, you know, people acting like cancel culture is a new woke thing that's happening now. Yeah. And uh, people were actually getting blacklisted in the 40s and 50s in Hollywood. Right. Unable to act anymore because of because of that. The the actress who plays Susan Alexander, Dorothy Comigore, uh, if you think like cancel culture is a new or even real thing today, you should, you know, Google Dorothy Comigore, who plays Susan Alexander, who... Um, refused to answer questions before HUAC and was blacklisted from Hollywood. And the police kept trying to arrest her for prostitution just as she was like walking around the streets. Yeah. Um, not actually being a prostitute, but just, just cause, and she never acted again. So, you know, <laughs> this is the last movie she's ever been in. No. So she makes a few more movies, but by the early fifties, her career's over. Oh, that's... A lot of it is because of William Randolph Hearst was right. mad at everyone who was involved in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Especially Mank. <laughs> Especially Mank. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whose brother is a really important figure in Hollywood and Mank, you know, co-wrote this movie, which is important, but it isn't as, you know, until David Fincher made that movie about him. There's barely any mank jokes we could have made. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. All right. This this will be cohesive eventually. I know. It's it's hard to know what or how to talk about it because I feel like the structure works when you're watching it, but it's so hard to yeah. talk about it in a linear fashion because the movie itself is not. It right. is kind of all in flashback talking about things and it makes sense when you're watching it. I never felt confused about where we were, what was happening, which is a feat in itself. Um, Yeah. But it's hard to know how to talk about it beyond it's, 
kind of given away, jumping right to the end, jumping to the beginning, jumping right. All yeah. Well, there's maybe just a few important scenes we could pick out or something. Um, obviously, the first one of <laughs> the first things you hear Charles Foster Kane say when he's a little kid playing with his sled and throwing snowballs out in the snow is "Union forever," as his mom is signing him away to break up their family. Um, you know, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway. That scene's incredible. There's there's a bunch of camera stuff that's happening and you forget that this movie is so old because the camera is moving through the scene and then settling down on top of furniture that it should have just moved through. And you're like, wait, there isn't steady cams yet? We talk about how revolutionary the use of steady cams are in uh The Shining, you know, almost a year ago. That movie came out in 1980. <laughs> And this is, if the camera's moving, it's on tracks right? that they have to hide or move the camera in such a way that you can't see it. There's the long focuses. Anyway, that scene's incredible. And uh, yeah, the pretty good child acting, but I guess, I don't know. I like that he attacks Thatcher. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, and this is the first time that they're using a camera that doesn't have like a blurred background, right? This was the very so first time. they're... Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, you know, long focus, universal focus. It's been called. I am no um, camera technology. You're not a grip. Aficionado. Yes, correct. I'm, I'm not the I'm not the best <laughs> boy. I'm not a grip. <laughs> Never mind a key grip. And um, anyway, Greg Toland is experimenting with tons of stuff. There's they're putting different like solvents on the lens. They're using different lenses. Um Cameras now pretty much work the same in this regard, but even more so back then, if something isn't super well lit, it doesn't get picked up by the camera. So they're playing around a lot with lighting, a lot with camera lenses, the, you know, the length, long, the focus, and it, uh, it blew people's minds. So when you talk about the technology, and so we don't spend all the time talking about it, um, a, a kind of simple way that I hadn't even thought about before uh, this time I watched it and was listening to the Roger Ebert commentary on the disc with it. Um, it's not just the focus that freaked people out or the low angles or just like all this, the, the long takes that it wasn't just dialogue and close ups, And that's how all other movies basically looked at the time. It's the fact that you didn't see ceilings before people had never seen ceilings in a movie before. And that kind of blew their minds. So you're coming from even just that simple thing that watching today as someone who was born 50 years after the movie came out, um, never even considered that that would be something that would be weird for a viewer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how'd they do that? The, the ceilings are all fabric and the lighting and the microphones are on the other side of the ceilings because all the oh, microphones, that's really cool. all the microphones are booms. Right. So you can't see ceilings because they, they can't make ceilings in their sets. And you need to be able to light everything. So the way they solve for that is they light and mic through the ceiling. That's really cool. The and, set itself is just yeah. really well done. There's multiple times where the size of something or the perspective probably take, takes me by surprise. There's yeah. that part where he's talking and then he walks to the window in the background and the window ends up being huge and yes. like right above him. Right. And it's all just kind of playing with your expectations of what's going to happen. So it makes the entire film seem like it's all told through an unreliable narrator. Like it's right. all told through either journalism or pieces or his own yes. kind of 
autobiography it's pieces. And always it's, messing with you. It's always messing with you the yeah. entire yeah. time, which is such a cool idea. Yes. And that, that scene in particular is, yeah. is pretty famous because it's as he's signing away his empire to Thatcher and the banks. Mm-hmm. He's moving to the background and you're like, oh, the, the windowsill is more than six feet off the ground, it turns out. And he looks so tiny in the mm-hmm. background. When uh, Susan Alexander's at the, in her nightclub, yeah, but it's a, it's the set, and then the camera zooms in over the top. That, that's then practical. it goes so right into the room. You you can notice a seam in the sign because as the camera moves to the sign, the sign pulls apart so the camera can move through it. Ah, oh, I'm gonna now I'm gonna rewatch it. That's how they do. It. Yeah, there's so many things. That yeah, can- yeah, because you mentioned it was the same thing with the table, right? When they're like uh, in the cabin at the yes. beginning. When they're at uh, Mrs. Kane's boarding school. And they move from the window, the adults move to the table and sit down at it. And then the camera sits down and you're like, how did it just go through that table? Right as the table comes into the frame from below, you can see the hat, Mr. Mr. Thatcher's top hat is sort of shaking on it because the two pieces of it just moved. Yeah, right. Yeah. That scene in particular, the camera's moving all over that room and then it looks back and you realize there's a bunch of furniture in the way is where it just came from. And it's just because it's deceptively light furniture and things that are in pieces that someone is behind the camera pushing around <laughs> as it goes by. It's, you know, just old in-camera tricks that yeah. look awesome. <laughs> but Yeah, but then well, before we were talking about Avatar, you know, one guy does this sitting in a studio. Yeah, it still has to be good, though. No, I, I know, but <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It still has to have some kind of like soul and humanity to, to it for it to be To me, good. this is... This is like, I'm not, I'm going to sound like a complete idiot, but this is like, this is filmmaking Mm -hmm. to me, not. I would agree. (laughs) I I understand that the CGI stuff is very difficult. I I could never do it in a million years, but to me, get doing this manually is much more difficult than doing this on a computer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I would agree with you. And it takes a lot, (laughs) it takes a lot of time to render CGI. Sure. But just the actual time you and the conception of it and the inventiveness of what's happening here right. is, you know, Toland and, and uh, I almost said Kane and Wells are sort of, you know, making things up as they go along, not just improving on stuff that already exists. Right. So, mm-hmm. To James Cameron's credit, he is inventing new cameras and new ways to film sure. underwater and mm-hmm. stuff. But um, as long as we're talking about the technical stuff, let's just talk about the technical stuff. Uh, one, one of the other really cool things that I had in mind and then forgot when I started introducing this bit here Let's see if I can remember it. Um, there's an oft-reported, uh, d- I don't know, I wasn't there. Maybe he said this, maybe he didn't, but the RKO executives are showing Orson Welles around the RKO studio and backlot, and they're showing him all the special effects machines and optical printers and all the different things he can do, and he remarked that it is the finest train set a boy could ever have. Um, and he used every part of it. And every way that you can possibly project light onto film, he he uses in this. There's even the scene where he's literally like doing the shadow play thing with his hands. Yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> um, there's a couple different scenes that aren't just like the universal focus from everything from the foreground to the far background is in focus. Um, there's also a lot of times where they're compositing images with the optical printer, basically. They were doing that with part of the frame is completely in the dark uh, in one shot where they get like the right side 
And then they do the opposite thing. Part of the frame on the left side is completely yeah. in the dark. And then they use the optical printer to put those together. So that's um, a bunch of times where there is matte drawings. The most famous scene of that is the cane rally with the big cane poster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, after the opera where they are in the Chicago Inquirer office where Leland is starts in the background and walks up to Kane while he's at the typewriter typing the bad notice. The bad review, yep. Yeah, those are actually two different shots that they composite with the optical printer. You know, it's just cool shit. You see that a lot in Casablanca. <laughs> yep. My, in a movie that I've seen about 15 times. So. Yeah. I think that's our mom's favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's we we also like it. it wasn't yeah. just like Meh. no, no, <laughs> no was, yeah yeah no no sounded like a brush it, off. And also too in the beginning when it, um it's the room is completely dark except for the light coming through the windows and God, you can, yeah. you just see the sm- the cigarette smoke wafting with the, through with the, the journalists air with the journalists the yeah yep yes and uh, so that shot in particular and again this is just going to be a grab bag of fun facts for part of this episode at least <laughs> that shot those shots in particular that scene. Um, Wells and Toland had to lie to RKO and say that they were just lighting tests and that that wasn't how the scene was actually going to look. Yeah. Because the executives at RKO would have thought it was so radical as to they would have tried to like seize control and stop them from making the movie look like this. Yeah, it makes sense. But there's there's so many times when ostensibly the subject of the scene is in complete darkness and you can't see their face. That being a main one because... Mr. Thompson is just some dude who's observing everything and he's right. always like in witness position. Right. Um throughout the movie. And yeah, that scene, he's just in darkness. There's a lot of times when the other characters are in darkness. Kane in particular, you can't see his face when he's writing his declaration of principles. Right. And, you know, stuff like that that they play with light in a really interesting way that doesn't really happen in movies, <laughs> besides a few that, you know, we get to talk about for Oscar season every year. Every movie that we we've seen today is just a, a somewhat of a ripoff of yeah <laughs> this movie. Every character, if you watch from Yellowstone, like every idiotic or main character with a giant ego is just Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's hard not it's hard to avoid the comparison. Yeah, not just in media, but just like people who exist in the world as we already talked about. Right. You you get tagged with that with the Citizen Kane, yeah. The, the headline yeah. Citizen, you know, Trump, Musk, right. whatever. <laughs> he just he created this archetype of this is what the character is like, and every character that's tried to do something similar, I feel like pulls at least some piece of their characterization from this, and they have to. It is the archetype. It is what it is. It's right. the yeah. best way. I think it's portrayed because it feels heightened. Absolutely, but also real. This is someone that we've all seen in the news. It's someone that we understand what their motivations are and why it's all happening. And it does explain (laughs) as it keeps going why this person's like this. And they're extremely unlikable, but you're still invested. And it's really, really, really well done because that's, I think, a really hard needle to thread a lot of older movies that I've watched, I just don't like the main character. And I don't know if that's just by virtue of a lot of it's misogynistic sometimes and things yeah, like sure, that. Sure, and I'm sure. just kind of, it's well, not anything that feels relevant and, yeah. sometimes to me. Right. And this is not that case at all. Yeah. You don't like the character, but it's because yeah. of the choices he keeps making and you're so upset and you're just like, why is he doing this? But you're also invested and it's really, really yeah. threads the needle really well. 
it's like that. I mean, the amazing moment with uh, Dorothy Conigore, Susan mm-hmm. Alexander, towards the end of her story, where uh, Thompson goes, you know, despite it all, I still kind of feel bad for him. Yeah, and she just goes, "Don't you think I do?" Yeah, and that's you know, it's just just it's about the last the way thing that she says. Feel as yeah. the audience too, and I was thinking more and more of if I was going to write a paper about this, what would be my angle? Just kind of thinking, and I yeah. do think it would be the gaze and kind of the perspective of who is whose eyes are we seeing all this through is it our own are we the audience being kind of taken along on the ride is it thompson is it the like who the journalists themselves is a general public public because it's so good at not really giving you all the information yeah right 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 and you really end kind of being like okay we have all this information about him but do we actually even know anything about him one of the effects of the long focus, the universal focus, everything in the frame you can see, nothing's blurred. So you as the viewer are deciding where to look because you could look at anything. And the composition of the shots is such that quite often in the foreground on the right side of the frame is someone with their back to you looking into the frame just like you are. And, you know, coming from stage, coming from radio, it's either sound effects or eye lines of characters or motion that is directing you where to look. Everything is in perfect focus at all times, so they're using all these other methods to direct your focus through the composition of the shots, which is pretty incredible. So yeah, there's a bunch of ways to watch the movie. You can just follow, you know, take any still and make a diagram of where everyone's eye lines are, and it's usually a triangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so fucking but, but to, but to, on your on your point there, about no, nobody knows who he is because yeah. Thompson's asking them, well, what does Rosebud mean? And everybody's like, I don't know. Yeah. Could, I don't know. know. And, then, and, then, and then I think, I'm, I don't think he does it every time, but sometimes he's like, well, just talk about him and yeah, maybe yeah, something yeah. will be relevant. Yeah. yeah. He's like, how about for a thousand dollars? Right. Yeah. He goes, that wasn't worth a thousand dollars. That guy didn't know. Yeah. No. I really like that they end it with no one knowing too. No one knows. Yeah. 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 I it's, like that. It's, and also Rosebud is kind of bullshit. It doesn't. Yeah. It's Kane may have thought it meant a lot, but does it really? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I, you can apply so much meaning to it if you want to. Yeah. But does it mean any of that? We don't know. It's part yeah, of, we don't know. you know, yeah. he sees it as his lost childhood that is affected everything else, but he's still been the guy who's made all these decisions throughout his life. Yeah. Right? He keeps making terrible decisions. Yeah. And yeah, maybe if he hadn't been pulled away from his mom and that's what he blames for everything else he's done throughout his life. How that's very Freudian of him. Yes. How very <laughs> Freudian. Yes. Uh, I think um, Wells referred to the concept of Rosebud as uh, dollar book Freud. Yeah. Like dollar store Freud. I get that. Which is funny that 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 was even Wells' perspective on it. It's like this this is bullshit. <laughs> This, this, it's another part of Kane's self-mythologizing that perhaps there is this one key that unlocks everything. I don't, it's it, the same it doesn't. It's bullshit. <laughs> thing. I feel like teaching English. One I of the always, great MacGuffins yeah, of, of film no, history. No, I feel like MacGuffin. teaching English, I run yeah. into things like this all the time, particularly when I'm talking about symbolism with the kids. Yeah. Because they'll be like, so everything has meaning. I'm like, no. Nope. And they're like, well, how do we know? I'm like, we don't. <laughs> we can apply what we want. We can right. try and figure it out. Sometimes an author will actually say like, hey, this is what I meant. But you're rarely going to get that, particularly on like things that are the classic literature. There's nothing we're applying what we can to it, but it's not 
there's no manual. There's nothing that's no. ever going to have like a broken down commentary for it. Everything so. has meaning to you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It has whatever you imbue it with. It's a Rorschach mm-hmm. test. It is. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, you know, on his way to go through his mom's things to try and like recapture his youth when he meets Susan Alexander. And uh, one thing I literally didn't notice till this time is the first time he meets her and goes into her apartment, you can see the snow globe. It's like next to her dresser. Um, And instead he tries to capture her youth instead of his recapture his own that night. But my favorite scene is when after that, and he has the affair and he's running for governor and he, and he ultimately loses because of the affair, which is like, I think most people would win nowadays, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it probably doesn't matter. Yeah, right, yeah. But in the he's, the paper, he's like, what, uh, the, they're writing, what, what's the headline we're going to write? And it says, fraud at the polls. So I'm like, yeah. wait, I see this before. Yeah, so either he wins or it's, or, it's, uh, yeah. voting, mm-hmm. or it's voter fraud. Yeah. yeah. One or the other. It can't be. We had such a flash up because we literally were watching this like while Trump was like. <laughs> yeah, I think he was probably watching in like 2019. Yeah. And it was one of those things. It's like, oh, well, yeah, that's, it seems ridiculous, yeah. but yep. not, not right, outside yeah. the realm of reality. No, not at all. Even in the no. 40s, especially yeah. in the 40s. Yeah. yeah. But for it to still be relevant right. is phenomenal. Yeah. It just shows you that this moment in time. And, and awful. We, and we, we and our moment in time is not special. But no. <laughs> does, but does, does life imitate art or does art imitate life? Do, do people. Depends on who you both. ask, right? Yeah. But dude, today, do we really think, well, maybe we shouldn't even go down this road, but th- does voter fraud really happen? Or because for 81 years we saw it happen in a place like Citizen Kane that we just like, oh, this must have happened mm. because yeah. it happened well, in 41. No. <laughs> no, I know, but what what if it's meta like that? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, and I, I think the funniest outcome of anything like this is that Hearst thinks it's about him. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it actually is, probably it is. But the fact that he thinks it's about him is the funniest part. Well, just the, like the guy's a lunatic. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. Uh, we're seeing this literally happen currently. Now that Glass Onion is out on Netflix and conservatives can watch it because they didn't go to see it a month ago and it was in theaters, um, and they're all mad because it's about Elon Musk to them, even though it's not. And it's, the movie was and the movie was made right. like two years ago, right? And uh, it was actually more about Mark Zuckerberg when they were making the movie. Yeah. But if you're a big Elon Musk fan, you're upset that this movie's about him. Yeah, right, right. And it's like, funny that you think this is about him. I yeah. think that says more about him yeah. than the movie. <laughs> Methinks they doth protest too much exactly. sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. I have a bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, like I said, there's a lot of things that we could talk about that are just be being, being like, here's another nerdy fun fact. But, um, you know, why do it? Uh, the other people in this movie are... A lot of his Mercury Theater people, uh, I guess Joseph Cotton's probably the one that goes on to be in his own right uh, star. He's in Gaslight and The Third Man and uh, yeah, a bunch of other stuff. And he's he's still in movies throughout the rest. Uh, his first wife, she is uh, Ruth Warwick. She's works like through the 90s into the early thousands, I believe. Um, she was on Days of Our Lives or All My Children. One, one of those. So, yeah. Is Days of Our Lives even real, or is that just in Friends? What do you mean? No, it's a real soap opera. It's real, right? It's yeah. real. Well, that's what Joey's on in Friends. Duel. Oh. 
Yeah. Okay. But Days of Our Lives is real. real. No, that's a real show. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. I think she's on All My Children, though. Um, but it is like one of the main people on it. But, but everyone else is pretty much just like a lot of people who have great careers. There's character actors or stage and radio people, and they're so good in this. And yeah, everyone's got a great voice. The best. Yeah. We need to bring back the mid-Atlantic accent. That's what's missing in the world today. <sighs> yeah. So good. Yeah. It's so good. It, so it makes good. even bad news sound yeah. upbeat and positive. <laughs> I mean, the newscasters of today definitely there is an accent because they the they almost mute whatever accent they have to could be some sort of kind of flat, yeah, yeah. almost Midwest, but without the twang or kind of the the yeah. I don't know. It's all like, there's a lot of, I took a linguistics course, so we've talked a lot about this, Yeah. Um, but it's not the same because it's more, the transatlantic was trying to do more of a British twang yeah. or tinge to it. Yeah. Twang is not the right word. Well, we'll uh, do a screwball comedy month at some oh, point. So good. Get, get Catherine Hepburn in there. Oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, so Joseph Cotton plays Jed Leland and he's probably arguably like the only good friend that Kane ever has that's like real with him. Um, and he has a couple incredible scenes. He's, he's great throughout and he's in this a lot. And then obviously maybe not, I shouldn't say obviously people probably are listening to this and might not have seen the third man, but he stars again as a friend of Orson Welles in the third man. And, um, anyway, point being, he's, he's really good in this and, uh, he didn't like his old age makeup, but I don't think it's that bad. No, I, I mean, you know, we're not watching this film for the makeup, right? Yeah. Yeah. But still exactly. pretty good. Still pretty good. Uh, yeah, some of the scenes in this are incredible. The, I mentioned the first wife, played by Ruth Warwick. The scene at the breakfast table is is one of like the famous montages in movies where you go through several seemingly years of marriage. Right. And uh, you, you open with the two shot and you see them sitting, that they're sitting next to each other. And then it's just close ups as they're being becoming colder and colder and then eventually not speaking. And eventually she's reading the competitor's newspaper and he's still reading the inquirer and the camera pulls back and reveals they're sitting very far apart now. And that's it. That's basically all their marriage gets. But she says something like, well, what, what are people going to think or what are they going to read? And he says, well, they'll read, they'll think what I tell them to think. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. What I tell them. Yeah. And, and then, you know, so you get like a sense that she's been a big part of his life and it's really just that scene. And then after the rally, in the uh, apartment. Yeah. It kind of moves through her pretty quick. Right. (laughs) And you find, and you already know from the opening news on the March that she dies two years after they get divorced with their son. So sad. Good riddance. (laughs) She had to die for him to fulfill his destiny. As, as a sad old weirdo in a castle that never finished being built. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Surrounded by all the stuff. Cool castle, though. A, a lot of uh, on-purpose hodgepodge of different props from RKO's backlot. And uh, I love in the archival stuff at the beginning that it's just obviously entirely different buildings that they're showing shots of, just building the impression that he's just, you know, stealing different parts of castles from all around the world. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, you know, with just some matte paintings and a few pieces of furniture, they really convey the idea that there's just like these cavernous great halls that uh, poor Susan is just doing puzzles in. <laughs> you really feel bad for Susan. We haven't even talked about the opera stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, I think that was my least part, favorite part of the movie because... Um, it's just so brutal for Susan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's just really making a point. He's just trying to control every aspect of his life. And he's like, yeah. well, this woman obviously can't sing, but I'm going to just tell everybody that she can sing and see if I can convince them all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the part where they pan up to the people that are in the, like above the, the, the crew that's up in above the stage and they're just like, woof. Yeah. Like, yeah. So right. Bad. Yeah. It's like, oh God. Impossible. Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> that of course is another special effects heavy shot where that's, mm-hmm. I think three or four different wipes happen as it's going from the stage up to those people up there. And you know, a great punchline on it when he just holds his nose. And yeah, the guy who's the, I guess the tutor. The opera coach, yeah. Good guy. Solid, solid <laughs> dude. He's doing his best. He's, do, he's doing what he can. It's like some people have talent, some people don't, honey. Yeah. You don't. A, <laughs> Fortuna Bonanova, I think is that our actor's name. I'm not sure. Um, but then Wells walks in. I mean, uh, Kane walks in. Yeah. He's like, uh, sing it again. Yeah. I knew you'd see it my way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Orson Welles is so good in this movie. Everyone's good in this movie. It's a good movie. My only reference to Arsene Welles is uh, watching the roasts. Sure. From like the 70s. Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, he becomes sort of like a bon vivant yeah, in, right, yeah. in Hollywood. Like a, he, like a caricature of himself. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And, uh, French wine or yeah, whatever, right, whatever right, that. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. Just, I just remember Rickles roasting him at the roast. Yeah. My favorite comedian. <laughs> Yeah, he becomes kind of a character himself. I mean, he still has a pretty good career. Yeah, of course. no, right, right, right. Makes um, great films. He has a, a a true friend in Peter Bogdanovich, who perhaps either himself or, or Wells himself wrote some stuff that Bogdanovich put his name on in response to Pauline Kael's Raising Cain essay that came out in the seventies. We don't have to get into that. Um, yeah, man, I don't know. Fascinating dude and a crazy movie to start your uh, movie career on what what i really like about this movie too is that you we learn all of this stuff uh sort of like in uh high school history and it's cool to see it play out in the media at that actual time yeah you learn about all the great uh robber barons and whatnot but yeah and then they put it to film and I, i thought that was unique yeah and i i feel like you know maybe a lot of those guys started in their you know early to mid 20s as idealistic kind of radical socialists almost. Right. And then just like the success and fame turned them into yep. this sort of gross caricature of an American. Yeah. It's that old quote, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Cool movie. Yeah, it's just, it's just a movie you can watch a bunch of times. It's kind of a mystery, sort of like a puzzle movie that you're right. trying to solve. Yeah. I guess as a viewer, you get to at least find out what Rosebud is, but and you sort of understand what it might mean to Kane. Yeah, but I like that the people don't. In the yeah. film, the people don't, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it was a good way to to close the film out, I think. Yeah, just a crazy ending. The all the stuff that he's been collecting over the course of the movie, you see, just you know, just burns it. It's just filling up a warehouse. Yeah. And uh, another way we talked about sight lines and triangles already that you can watch this movie is um, there's certain props that keep coming back. I think some of the statues that he sends early in the movie to the office is some of the statues that you see also at the end in Xanadu. So, you know, you can follow props that way too. Um, So many statues, way too many, way too many. Yeah. He didn't need that many statues. Someone should have stopped him. 
Where did RKO get all that stuff from? Um, a lot of it is just boxes, sort of it's suggesting more things, and then a lot of Not it sure, is right. uh, props from other movies. Yeah. <laughs> or probably, you know, plaster models or something. But I read that they his first two films, they didn't uh, they told him no. It, this was his third film that he wanted to make, and that they finally gave him the green light. Well, they liked the pitch, I guess. Considering this is maybe for a first watch, the most hyped a movie might possibly be. <laughs> yeah. How how did it stand up to that for you? I uh, no, I, it's very. I never. Uh, I guess I never really. I never watched it. Never appreciated it. But watching it, it's it's still very rele- relevant, topical, yeah. despite being filmed in the forties and some. It's, it hasn't gotten canceled, even though there's this a little bit of questionable character tropes, I think, mm-hmm. about especially people in the press. Maybe you could look at it that way. I don't know. I thought one of the reporters, uh, what's his name? Mr. Bernstein. Maybe been, maybe. The, yeah. I don't know if you could do that today, but you know what I mean? I don't know. I think the implication is that Bernstein's a stand-in for Louis B. Mayer. That's sort of the function that he plays to Hearst in gotcha. Mank, at least. Yeah. Um, so I'm just taking Mank as absolute gospel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. But, but the relevancy is kind of crazy because there's certainly movies that have come out since then that don't feel as relevant. That feel no, very, sure, right. very dated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and to your point that you said earlier, that we're not, we're not unique. Everybody, even though we like to think that we all are and living right, in yeah. 2020, Two twenty three ish, but the same stuff was happening eighty two years ago. So yeah, the big societal problems are I feel like cyclical. Like it's always going to well, keep yeah. coming back up yeah, as exactly. long as there's societies to do so. So yeah, he's uh, you know then that that depression hit and everyone lost all their money. Yeah, <laughs> too bad for them. That pesky depression. Yeah, pesky pesky yeah. depression. Everyone lost everything. Mm-hmm. Great. It was a Great Depression. Um, and just on that ending bit, it, it does feel very Ghost of Christmas Future. Yeah. When they're all being like, mm, and what did it all add up to? Yeah, right. All his stuff. <laughs> his bed sheets are still warm. Or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, man. And then you'd literally, I mean, whatever. Maybe it's on the nose. Again, Pauline Kael called it a shallow masterpiece, but still a masterpiece. When uh, Thompson's literally holding a, a jigsaw puzzle that isn't put together. And he's like, maybe he's a puzzle. Right. <laughs> but do, do you think that this film can be remade today? Like, is somebody going to remake? It shouldn't be. You can remake Citizen Kane? Why would you? Yeah, no, I don't know. People do a lot of crazy things. People do a lot of crazy things, but you just be doomed, doomed to fail. I they think. remade Blade Runner. That was, it's not a, they didn't yeah. remake Blade Runner. It's a sequel. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> My bad. They could do a sequel to this, but I don't know what it would be <laughs> about. That's true. Yeah, that would be yeah. weird. Uh, don't you ever? Yeah, don't you ever? All his family is dead. Or but when you watch so. black and white movies, don't you ever like? What did this look like in color? You ever think that? I thought. I think that sometimes. Yeah, they'd have to light it differently. Yeah, they have to treat the film differently. Right. So it would look different. I guess. Right, because they they released a color version of Casablanca, and um, uh, Humphrey Bogart's jacket is actually it's like a canary yellow, mm. and oh, it, it yeah. like really doesn't work at all. No. It's much better in black and white. Yeah. Because why would you be wearing a canary yellow <laughs> yeah. double-breasted suit jacket? No. That's the, um, if you look at like black and white TV shows from pre-color TV 
everything isn't, you know, shades of black and white. Everything is sort of like pastels. Right, right, right. Because that's what pops in black and white. Yeah. <laughs> so if you colorized it, you know, or if they knew they were making it for color, the wardrobe that would be much different. Walls, yeah. Everything would be a different color. Yeah. So they'd have to light it differently. Although maybe not so much this movie because they light the backgrounds a crazy amount in this movie just so you can still see them. Yeah. Uh, which other movies weren't doing at the time. I mean, we've talked about so much of the tech stuff. We should mention the, the editing is also incredible. And, and the editor went on to win directing and best picture Oscars for two movies. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, West Side Story and The Sound of Music. And he was just the editor on this. So. Oh, I love the sound of music. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, quite a pedigree from this movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he'd do that like 20-something years after this movie came out. Well, yeah, because the sound of music came out in, what, 62? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That sounds right. Robert Wise. Yeah, Robert Wise, big famous guy, who ultimately the president of the Academy, all that stuff. Big Hollywood guy. <laughs> um, You know, I don't know. I still have a bunch of other notes, but who cares? <laughs> what are your other notes? Just, yeah, I, I just love, we, we talked about the way that it's sort of, I guess, foregrounding, but also not, um, like the act of witnessing, the fact that so much of the movie is people's perspective on events that have happened. Yeah. And literally, often in flashback, that person appears in the right side of the frame facing the rest of the scene, just like you viewing it. And it's just cool. I don't know. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I get yeah. that. Yeah, but I find that it's the flashbacks cool. they're a little bitter. People, they're very yeah. bitter. Yeah. Uh, except for Bernstein, who only tells him the good stuff. Right. And then he talks to Leland, and Leland's like, "Well, well, while that was happening, here's all the dark shit." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I, mad. He, he says something like, uh, "He was a snake." No, he was. A, he says something. He has a one line about him. I forget what it is. Uh, well, Leland's the one that gets at the heart of it. We, we haven't talked so much about his parts, but the bit after Kane loses where they're talking in the office and in that scene, they literally have a hole in the floor that the camera's in. That's why it's at such a low angle. Um, and he's, you know, in that scene, he's telling him to his face and then really explicitly saying when you come out of the flashback and it's just him as an old man telling Thompson, you know, he he didn't believe in anything. He didn't love anything except Charlie Foster Kane. And he, right. he wanted people to love him, but he was incapable of loving them. Right. Yeah. Gets right at the heart of it. it it's, that, that's more makes, about Fink Kane than Rosebud is. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, true. Yeah, yeah. right. But, I, well, I guess you could tie it all together that if you lose your childhood like that, yeah. maybe that maybe you don't you don't learn how to yeah. do and, stuff like that. Yeah, and if you look at it that way, the, if Kane's just sort of like an overgrown child who never, like, developed emotionally yeah it's it kind of all falls together right in a neat bow you know like a jigsaw puzzle like a jigsaw oh well <laughs> well on that note is there anything else we want to say about citizen kane uh i just want you want to get to the ratings <laughs> we don't have to if, oh, okay. i mean if literally if there is anything else you want to say about it we got time no i i these are my favorite films i enjoy black and white films mm -hmm. so i mean I, I just i could watch them all day yeah. yeah, good. That's why it's good to start with you on this one. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't realized well, it you. didn't win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. No, because no. William getting, Randolph Hearst wouldn't yeah. let it win Best yeah, Picture. Journalism. The only thing they won was Orson Welles, and I guess the others won Best Original Screenplay. The others, Herman Mankiewicz, <laughs> Mank himself. Sorry. The others. 
The others? Yes. Yeah, that other guy. <laughs> the other guy, that what is... What was his name, Hank? <laughs> yeah. Hankowitz? Hank! Yeah. Uh, I think it's nominated for nine Oscars, yeah, it but it only wins... Yeah, nominated for many, but... Yeah, it only wins screenplay. Yeah, best and, picture was How Green Was My Valley. I mean, it's a good movie. Yeah, but can you imagine John today? Ford. Can you imagine the media today being like, you can't... This, this picture can't be best picture because we say it can't be best picture? That would be insane. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they were uh, they were afraid of repercussions, I guess, in the good or something. I don't right. know. Um, and that's how you end up with Coda winning Best Picture, I guess. What? <laughs> <laughs> All other nine nominees, some newspaper magnet threatened the Academy <laughs> that if this one, and then they yeah, they're like, well, what yeah, about that's crazy? What about Coda? And Rupert Murdoch was like, Coda's fine. <laughs> Coda can win. <laughs> anyway. Anywho's, um, yeah, that would be that would be crazy. Mm-hmm. But whatever, awards don't matter. But yeah, no, just they probably matter. Doris and Wells, but a guy I like that. Maybe that's the one. Well, that's that's why it's not a complete apples to apples comparison for today. Is that William Randolph Hearst, despite people like Murdoch and Ted Turner and how much power they have today, it's it's not equivalent to the same amount of power that maybe a William Randolph Hearst had at that at that time. No. Right. no. We're much better at sort of different opinions and checks and balances. Yeah. Mm. At least we should be. Supposedly. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're more conscious of it. Like we we can see when something is poorly allocated and kind of a monopoly is happening here and we recognize where there is issues. Whereas at that time it was just uh, a par for the course sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these awards bodies are still filled with weirdos. Sure. So yeah. That's, yeah. So whether or not there's some kind of media conglomerate telling them what to do. Do you really want to hang out with anyone who decides the Golden Globes? Probably not. Probably not. Right. Anyway. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, nominated for nine, only wins screenplay. Yeah. Watch just, Mank if you want to hear more <laughs> about the process of writing uh, Citizen. I just thought it was sh- not shocking. I just thought it was really f- funny in the context of it has I feel like my entire life been called like the greatest movie that's ever been made yeah and it has yeah um and this is you know we were, we talked at the beginning about the the sight and sound pole being the the canon uh they've been doing it since 1952 and this isn't number one when the first poll comes out but when the second poll comes out through until 2012 it is number one and so that's sort of just reflective. Bicycle Thieves, in case you were wondering, is the first number one on Science Out. Hmm. Um, Where's, uh, I didn't see Lawrence of Arabia on this list. I think all of, um, yeah, yeah, all of that guy's movies are gone. Uh, David Lean. No, he just doesn't, yeah, just didn't make it. Didn't make, didn't make the cut. It's only 100, which when you think about it, that's a, it's not that many spots. Yeah, it's, I get, sure. There's two 2019 movies on it, so, you know, how many can really fit? Yeah. Um, yeah. Fuck, what was I going to say? Dude, it's going to be good, too. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, watch Mank if you don't want to watch this. No, I'm kidding. Um, I have a bunch of friends, many of whom, all of whom, have been on this podcast that host an Oscars party every year. Yeah. When is it? Uh, <laughs> Oscars night, um, <laughs> uh, which this year is mid-March. Um, and they watched Mank because they watch all the Best Picture nominees. And that was, what, 2019, 2020, whatever it was. 
Um, and they did not and have not watched this game. And they only watched Bank. And they said it didn't make a ton of sense. Well, no kidding. That's what I said. <laughs> and so I was alone wow. on Mank Island. Alone on Mank Island. Just me and Mank on Mank Island. Um, Mank's, is, Mank's fine. Citizen Kane's better. Watch either way. Watch Citizen Kane. Yeah. It's a good movie. Yes. A movie that you can make dramatic movies that get nominated for Oscars about a guy who wasn't even in it. Mm-hmm. Just wrote it. So they're like, they're the Ars- Orson Welles to your Mank. I don't want to be Mank. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. They're, they're saying this doesn't make any sense. That's what Orson Welles said to Mank. That's why he rewrote the thing 400 times. And gave <laughs> him like that. 300 notes of... Uh, um, direction. So just on the authorship, real quick, we've mentioned, I, I think it's funny how many times I said we're not going to talk about Pauline Kael, but in 1971, <laughs> she wrote Raising Cain, an book-length essay which contained a tremendous amount of factual errors and lazy reporting about the writing of Citizen Kane, in which she pretty much gave all 100% of the credit to Mankiewicz and said Orson Welles didn't contribute at all. Um, despite not actually doing that much fact checking or interviewing other people, she just sort of went with someone else's research that had already been done and somewhat ironically for the subject that she was writing about, did not credit the other person's research and didn't actually interview, you know, Orson Welles, who was still alive at the time, Orson Welles, secretary, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, other people involved. Um, and despite you know, all these other stuff that is evidence to Orson Welles' involvement in the script writing since then did do lasting and permanent damage to Orson Welles himself and his perception and reputation. Um, not nice by Pauline Kael. Anyway, so that's why there's been so much controversy over the years about the authorship of Citizen Kane. And um, It was a collaborative you know, effort. It is. It is a collaborative effort. That Orson Welles took all the credit for. Mm-hmm. He wanted to. He wa- He did want just himself as the writer, and I think that was the original contract or something. I haven't watched Mank or read Wikipedia in a while. That he had offered to Mankiewicz was that he writes it and gets paid for it, but it's just going to say Wells on it, but ultimately both of them are on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can see who he really considers his collaborator on the movie is Greg Toland, because on the directed and produced by Card, also the, I forget if it's just photography, cinematography, whatever, Greg Toland, he's also on that card. So Orson Welles doesn't get a card to himself in the credits. Um, he also lists himself last in the credits, which is funny because he had a huge ego. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, so I'm going to put myself last. It's a little joke because everyone knows how much of an ego I have. <laughs> Those credits are great, by the way. Mm-hmm. No one had done credits like that before. Yeah. Here's this person. Here's a little line from them. Look at him. <laughs> by the way, the uh, the editor when he gets to the Inquirer the first time—that's the most befuddled a man's ever been. <laughs> the guy who just gets progressively more sweaty and his hair gets crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just making like frog mouth. Yeah, no, right. Like, it's a good it's a good performance by that guy. Yes. Yeah. Academy Award winning. Yeah, uh, I feel like we're running out of steam a little bit here. Um, yeah. That's okay. Uh, we're burning the the sled, and black smoke is rising from our chimney. Yep. Um, as Adriana from Sopranos said after Carmela's, "Oh, don't stop f- believing." <laughs> oh, 
after Carmela's <laughs> film club watched this movie, so it was just his sled. He should have told somebody. <laughs> um, the cinematography was nice. Uh, yeah, big famous movie. I mean, you know, it's been parodied been everything by everyone. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Carmela starts a film club, and they watch this movie because it was number one on the sight and sound list. So the sight and sound list is important. The Sopranos think so. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Um, on a scale of 0.5 to 5, on any scale of your choosing, <laughs> keeping in mind that quite a few films have scored very highly on our ratings. I know. We, I feel like... What we, would you give Citizen Kane? High. <laughs> it's rough. What would you give Citizen oh, no. Kane? Even those dang Marvel movies. On a scale yeah. up to five, considering that Doctor Strange has got, got like a four and a half or I something. Know, right? no. I I I take mine out back on that. Yeah, I give it a three, three and a half. We, we, we're, I mean, we're grading on a curve here. And this is a movie that has working against it perhaps the heaviest expectations any film carries with it for a first time viewer. Yep. So you should go first. <laughs> I give it five Xanadus out of five. Oh, oh, I was going to use Xanadus. Xan- uh, really, William Randolph first had his own weird castle he called San Simeon. That's the connection. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, no. I was going to use Xanadus. Oh, well, that's too bad. I mean, there's so many objects in this movie. Snow globes, I guess. Sleds. Sleds. Rosebuds. Yeah. Felt like that would be News marches. Yeah, I'm going to preface this just by saying it does, I think, warrant a five out of five on the like general. This is a fantastic movie. Everyone should see it because it is based on the basis for so many other things. If I was just basing it on what do I want to watch, it would not be. (laughs) It would be a four point five. But I'm going to say five out of five for the actual like letterbox. Be true to yourself. Five out of five. Give it a one. I'd give it a f- No. <laughs> I like it a lot. This film it would just was be, terrible. Like, I would rather watch Lord of the Rings than this. Like, but yeah. it's not, it's just personal taste of like, I, I like fantasy more yeah. sort of thing. Then it's a great movie. So five out of five. Um, sneaky sleds. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Sneaky. Yeah, I mean, it's a five for me. This movie is great. You can watch it a billion times. I've watched it twice in the last 18 hours. (laughs) I watched it once and then I was like, I wonder what the Roger Ebert comedy commentary is like. And then I started watching it. It was so good. I watched it again. So, you know, it's a kind of movie that supports that sort of habit. Um, Yeah, man, it's just the the fucking template, right? This Mm -hmm. is... It really is. There's certain... There's certain thunderbolts in the timeline of art. And no, okay. I mean, let's not get like that with it. But Wait, can, yeah. Can we do a question? It's, no, it's give a th- your rating. Give your rating. Okay. Um, it's a thing that changed everything that came after it. Everything that came after it had to be recontextualized. How does it compare to this? What does it take from this? That it fucking matters a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. It's five out of five. Hmm. Hmm. I think um, what would be fun. Um, it gets, it gets all the, it gets all the, it's, it gets all the raspberries. <laughs> it gets five out of five raspberries. All the raspberries. As Susan Alexander complains that, you know, he, when he says like, it's his name or whatever, she's the one that gets the raspberries. Mm-hmm. So this is the one that gets five raspberries. Gotcha. Got it. 
Yeah, that's good. I like that one. That's good. That's that's an obscure. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Uh, it is now and will always be one thing. Five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, as the host of this podcast, is this the best movie that you guys have done, or we collectively have done? Besides The Godfather Part 1. I do truly think it's the most two. important one. Yeah. Um, we only did Godfather Part 1. That would be in the running. Despite this current sight and sound list, I do think Silence of the Lambs is up there too. Mm. I love The Shining. It's not my favorite Kubrick movie, so I can't really say that it's the best. <laughs> would be the one that we've done here. Um, maybe, probably. Yeah. Mm. If we talk about my favorites, it's not my favorite movie we've done. Yeah. I think it's all about context. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. Um, Part of the Ebert commentary is he says, when people ask what the best movie is or my favorite movie, I say Citizen Kane. But I also say that it's a stupid question and there's no real way to answer it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Depends on the context. It depends on what you're asking about. But just in terms of... It's the most important movie we've watched, which hopefully we've articulated why over the last hour and a half. And it's near my favorite. I think it's it's not just, you know, I think a lot of people probably think it's homework and it's not. It's fun to watch. It's funny. Oh, enjoyable. It's That's fun. a great point. It's it's funny. I don't know yeah. if we've made a good enough point. There's some good jokes in this yeah. movie. Yep. That hold up. Yeah. You know? I, it's, that's why I've never seen it because it always it's always like you have to read mm-hmm. 19, yeah. 1984 in school. and Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is another homework assignment. Yeah, that's yeah. Maybe that's something we should have brought up earlier and been like, "Keep listening. It's not homework." <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's just it, it is a towering achievement in just about every way that uh, you know, moving images are captured on screen, and yeah, even sound, even light. You know, freaking everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a reason why the movies are the movies. <laughs> yep. Thanks, th- thanks, Vin. <laughs> uh, man, anything else? Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, you look like you had something to say. No, no. Okay. No. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, you can um, you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbeans. You can buy now that the now that the winter rush is over and you've gotten <laughs> yeah, all your buy money, some merch. Yeah, you got all your you know Christmas checks from your family members. Um, put all that money onto our T public to buy however many shirts you can afford with Greg's face on them. Mm-hmm. You can also, there's also ones without Greg's face on them. I always say that just mention that one. Cause it's funny. It's also mugs with Greg's face on them. A mug with his mug. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it remains our best joke we've ever made. <laughs> um, you can email Noah at late to the movies at gmail.com. That's the number two. You can, Look at all the fun posters that we make at late to the movies underscore podcast on Instagram. That's also the number two, not the letters. And that's just about does it, I think. Mm-hmm. And rate review is on Apple, whatever. You know, do do what your heart tells you. If you're still listening, our next episode will I think it'll time timing wise, our next episode is gonna be singing in the rain. We're also gonna do Mulholland Drive and Vertigo this month, and it's a five Monday month, so I'm trying to pick a fun fifth option from the top 10. I'm not sure which one it is yet, but those four I've mentioned, well, including the one we just finished, that's what's coming up. All right. I'm usually bad at remember telling people what's up next. So in case you wanted to watch it. Great job. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks guys. Kay and Anthony, thank you for being on. Thanks for having us. And that's pretty much it.
And we will end, uh, since it's been for about an hour and a half, with another cockatoo screaming. (laughs) I don't know how to do it. It's just... I'll, I'll edit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll edit it in, maybe. Do it uh, in post. Do it in post. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.